Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. And the Christmas season is, of course, well underway. It's a good time for catching up with people of whom you have not seen enough. And with that in mind, I'm honoured this week to be able to introduce to you somebody who's played a big part in shaping the podcast behind the scenes this year. From across the pond, a fellow London enthusiast and writer and editor and photographer for National Geographic, Larry Porges. Some of what we talk about today has the air of a quiz about it, and that rumble you can hear in the background is a much bigger quiz coming down the tracks towards you. Got a bumper set of questions cooking. Keep your ears pinned back over the next couple of weeks. For now, though, we're off to the Royal Festival Hall, making this my last chance before the big day to wish you, if you're celebrating it, a very happy Christmas. And if you're not, then uh, at least a, a bit of peace and quiet, a break from the routine, or maybe even a bit of overtime, because nothing says Christmas like time and a half. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a song through from your front door. by the South Bank. We're at the Royal Festival Hall, looking down on the river. Uh, the lights are just coming on in the, in the buildings for uh, late afternoon, early evening, and a light has come on next to me, who is Larry Porges, who has travelled some way to talk about books of lists and coming back to London and uh, what London looks like from afar. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, yeah, I could do with a bit of sunshine, I think. It was thinking about it earlier, but I think it's given up on the idea. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Larry, you are, uh, you're a freelance editor and writer, um, sometime of National Geographic. You were at National Geographic for quite some yeah, time, uh, weren't you? about 16 years, from 2000 till about a year ago. And what, I should ask you about the, what happened a year ago, but what, uh, what were you up to when you were there? I was in the travel book division of National Geographic. I was an editor, and as an editor, you often sort of segue into writing a little bit. And as uh, I had uh, lived for five years in London as a youth and sort of became the travel division expert on London. So started writing a couple of our updates to our guidebooks to London. And um, about uh, two years ago, we put out a book called the uh, National Geographic London Book of Lists, which I was uh, co-author of. And we should give credit to Tim Jepson, who's the, uh, yes. the, the, the other part of that. Exactly. Yeah, Tim's a, a local author. And since I was uh, working from a distance, I kind of covered the historical cultural aspects and he did more of the on the ground research. So I've been an, an editor and uh, became a writer um, and uh, was at Nash Geographic for as I say about 16 years and I'm not sure if you know Nash Geographic was uh, purchased by well split into two companies and uh, one of the company branches was bought by 21st Century Fox and one of the things they did at the uh, when the new company came was to offer some old timers uh, what we call buyouts and I, I squeaked in with two months to go, uh, my age and years of service, and uh, happily accepted. So I've spent the last year on the payroll, but I've been working on a different book, uh, which listeners may not be as interested in. It's a, I've been touring around America, driven 45,000 miles in the last seven months, and I've been working and writing that book. So uh, that's what I've been doing, but I'm here for a visit, see some of the old friends, 
So you're, on, you're taking a break from being on permanent road trip by uh, travelling thousands of miles. <laughs> exactly. And what's the connection with London in your personal life? Uh, well, uh, my family moved here in uh, 1970. It all kind of started with my father, who was a war refugee. My father was Austrian and uh, came here on the kinder transport program in 1939. And had, we always had sort of a separate set of families in, in sort of North Devon, South Wales area. And we had actually come to England in 1969 to visit those, those families. But we also had always an affinity for England, caught through my father. But in 1970, he accepted a, a transfer. He had worked for uh, ABC News. And so he came over and took us. It was very nice. Um, and uh, we lived here for three years then. And then I came back for a year for university and a year after that because I, I really love London and uh, have been coming back sort of periodically ever since and uh, you know, studied English history and in university and it's been my thing. I managed to work it into my professional life too. We were talking before we hit the record button about the changes to Maida Vale. Were you saying in the in the sixties that's described as a slum area? Yeah. And I don't think the same could be. If you look at the house prices, the same uh, image is not holding now. But you coming back at regular points kind of gives us what was that term, film technique called? Is it stop motion cinema where you, you know you film one frame every so often? What have you seen changing the most drastically in London? Well, I can tell you my old neighborhood, which, as, as you said, was once described... In uh, Georgia Girl, the film, it's described as a slum, but uh, it started getting, you know, more and more leafy, and they started being hanging poinsettias on the on the street that I lived on, which was, you know, not, not the sort of thing. But it's... Uh, London itself, um, as everyone knows, it's just been changing so rapidly as we're looking out across the Thames. But I guess it's it's... Where the growth is, that's always been surprising to me because it's it's parts that I would never venture to when I was a, a young a young boy. Now, is that because you were particularly uh, respectable, or those areas were unsafe, or uh, because you didn't know where the action was? I think combination of all three. But, <laughs> uh, it's basically because I was younger. I was, you know, I think we, we left this when I was a when we lived here in the early seventies. I left when I was uh, twelve years old, so I just wasn't out, you know, adventuring too much on my own, going to going to parties. I actually spent a lot of time trying to avoid you know, roving gangs of skinheads who kind of were the thing back in the day. What were you back in the day? Did you belong to a tribe? Uh, no. Well, I went to an American school. So that was our, the sort of the center of our world, the American school in London, St. John's Wood. And I do remember one time we, were, we had our uh, gym classes in Regent's Park, and literally a roving gang of skinheads came by and started uh, messing with the girls' you know, baseball game next door. And our... Our teacher, who was a rugby player, an English rugby player, told us all to get the bats, you know, the big wooden bats, and come over and confront them, which was not something I was really kind of ready for at age, you know, 10. But he kind of, he squared up with the leader of their gang, and uh, this guy was huge, and uh, talked, it was a, a scene from a movie, and the neo-Nazis sort of uh, backed off, which was good, so, but I was terrified. <laughs> yeah. So. Where were we going with that? I can't remember. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the other thing we've established, is we, we are two people without a memory, <laughs> a memory brain cell between us. That's why they have the, re- the rewind button on these things. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is why we write everything down as well. Yeah. I was curious, given that you're part of the organisation, uh, or that you have been part of the organisation that you have been, but if you're inheriting so many guides that have already been written by the company about various places. It must mean that when you're looking at a place and thinking about how to put a guidebook together, you're actually reworking something that already exists rather than coming to it entirely fresh. I wonder what sort of... uh, I mean, it sounds like it could be a straitjacket. Well, I mean, we do have about... uh, National Geographic, I shouldn't say we anymore, but there are about about 70 guidebooks, and that's just one portion of the book division. That just was my little niche. But it's true, we, you know, we have a style, so cause it's part of a series. So a lot of those were already written, but we uh, also, you know, we commission their new places being worked on. But it's true, the style is sort of, is locked in. Uh, but it is strange to sort of go back and try and revise something that was written 10, 15, 20 years ago, especially in a rapidly changing city, you know, where, well, like when I did the London Guidebook, I was amazed. I thought, okay, Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral, that, nothing will have changed from three years ago. But no, in fact, you know, they've opened up the, uh, you know, they moved the baptismal font and they'd opened up the Triforium, which it hadn't been open in 300 years, things like that. And Westminster Abbey, they, uh, they keep changing the way you're, you go through it. It's not like you can roam around, you're sort of led through. 
So you're constantly rewriting. But uh, yeah, I mean, since it's a guidebook, it's not. We're not necessarily looking to, you know, uh, describe the, you know, the uh, the nuances of the the mood of the city. We're trying to say this is this is a great place to go, you know. But you know, while still preserving the, you know, the, some of the the real feel of the town. So let's dig into the volume in front of us. We have the London Book of Lists. Well, lots of people have written books of lists about London, and each one of them takes a very different slant on things. What's in prospect here? Uh, well, um, I guess what we well the subtitle is the uh, the city's best, worst, oldest, greatest, and quirkiest. And we have a little reading line. It's fascinating facts, little known oddities, and unique places to visit. I guess we wanted to. Um, this is manner, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes, um, we try to make the list not not your standard sort of like basic place to shop but we'll have the oldest stores in London and there are a lot of sort of historical lists like um, uh, menu items for a feast for Henry VIII or modern stuff that's just a little different like we have a list of actual jobs you can apply for to work at uh, Buckingham Palace um, which included one about you could be the clock winder you know they have a job that someone goes around there are a thousand clocks in Buckingham Palace and um, I just had to look on the website at the time I was writing the book or co-writing the book and they have this job where you have a thousand clocks and they have to be wound every week. Now, unfortunately, I was thinking of applying for that one, but uh, you also know how to fix a thousand clocks. So it's uh, um, they're very badly paid at Buckingham Palace. I got it. Unbe- yes, you should see it's unbelievable. What do you, get, for, what do you get as a clock winder? Up like twenty-eight thousand pounds or so, which is even less than it was about six months ago. Um, I don't know what exactly, but I know some of them include, and that's the fun part, some of them include lodging at Buckingham Palace. So I think the Clockwinder actually has uh, free lodging. You're not going to travel very far from it, are you, if you've got to wind, <laughs> wind a thousand well, clocks? Well, you might get an emergency call that a clock's off, you know, somewhere. So the lists are lots of different interesting... Like, we have, uh, we, give, we list all the, the old rivers of, the, uh, of London that are the disused, covered-over rivers and... What have we got there? I'm, I'm liking this one, that irreplaceable buildings lost in World War II. Yes. Could you name any of those? The Inner Temple Library on Fleet Street, Holland House in Holland Park in Kensington, um, the Great Synagogue of London at Duke's Place, Aldgate. Yes, we have all that, and we also have... Uh, you actually did a podcast on the, the remaining visible damage from World War II from, from uh, splinters, not shrapnel, as we learned, which I always find fascinating. It's just those little remnants of the past that you, you'll see when you turn any corner. Like, you know, the, I think you were at the Tate, Britain, but there's also outside the DNA, there's some well-known bomb damage there. We always mention when people help us out with episodes. I think you are fast becoming a serious contributor to the show. You've put us in touch with some fantastic people. And you must have tentacles all over the world, if you'll forgive me for saying so. <laughs> you must be a very well-connected man. Well, yes, I mean, we've, in, in the job, that is one thing I've noticed about uh, National Geographic is just, it opens doors. It's kind of amazing how, you know, pretty much everyone answers you when you ask for something. So, yes, no, I do know... Um, a lot of the PR people have been very helpful, but any, anything we need, there's there's people all over London, especially that I know, who've worked on various projects. But uh, what has the the road trip been doing to you? The American road trip. Well, um, it's made me out of shape. Is one thing because of driving around the country eating uh, Middle American food. Apologies to any Middle Americans listening. Um, what, what is Middle? I imagine just burgers, basically. What's that? I uh, imagine burgers. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, or a lot of deep fried things. You know, it's when you go to a, a restaurant and you go to the salad bar and the salads are like macaroni salad and potato salad, like a lot of mayonnaise based, you know, like very little actual greens. And, uh, but it's really, I, I mean, the United States, I've been fascinated by it. It also made me, one of the good things is it made me realize how amazingly friendly Americans are. Like you often hear, especially in Europe, uh, that Americans are friendly but it's superficial you know they don't mean it it's like i I don't know everywhere i went i was met with really genuine friendliness of course i was telling them i was writing a book about their community for national geographic but i also learned i mean just so many sites i've been i was driving through every one of the lower 48 states and uh seen so many amazing things again i i guess i like little remnants of history there's a little town uh, uh called lexington missouri that has a Civil War cannonball still lodged in its uh, in this in a tower from their courthouse, and it just uh, it's just little things like that, you know. I'm imagining you behind the wheel of this vehicle, more and more burgers going in. As you're driving, what are you 
doing? Are you occupying your mind in any way? What's happening there? Well, it's. I kind of expected that I'd be listening to books on tape and doing all that's, sorts. That's the worthy thing to do. <laughs> yes, I did listen to one. I listened to a lot of podcasts, for example. Um, oh, you're doing this while you're. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so you're going to be back on your road trip, and this will be on. Well, I'm done with the road trip, so I'm in road writing mode right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's basically the thing I didn't quite realize was everywhere I went in the country was someplace I'd never been in my life before, and I had to figure out how to get there how much time I had left in the day, where I was going to stay that night, you know, oh, and let me make that left turn and make a note about what I'm seeing around me and, you know, writing notes or making audio notes about where I've just been. And, you know, there's a lot going on, a lot of thinking going on. Very rarely, every now and then, I'd have like a hundred mile drive to get myself into position for the next drive. And I was like, oh, I can relax and just sit here and listen to things without, you know, basically navigating myself from one place to the next. Because um, that, that would drive you crazy if you went through a place and the, but forgot to write down the crucial detail. Yes, it yes it, it did drive me crazy. <laughs> 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 I'm finding that right now. I get mad at my my past self. I was like, huh? I wonder what that meant, you know? Or, or I don't put enough of my observances, you know, observations down. But I uh, know uh, no, it's all. I every drive would have I have a couple thousand words of notes, and now I'm you know patching it all together into some brilliant prose, rather. So. <laughs> How does that work in terms of, uh, and I guess this applies to, to any place, when you're, you've experienced a place to whatever depth and then you're somewhere else putting it back together, what's your process for doing that, for, you know, for catching the, the nuances of a place? Uh, well, it starts with, with being, that's, why, that's also one of the things that's so tiring is you kind of, if you have 12 places to see in a day and you roll into town, it's like, okay, you're constantly trying to summarize the essence of a place in about you know, a minute and a half. You know, it's like, you know, what's, what's, what's the mood here? What's the architecture? What does it look like? What are, the, what are people doing? Um, but then I'm trying to write as many notes as possible, and then I rely on the notes, you know, because it's, uh, it's pretty much all I've got, you know, because at the end of the day, very rarely I'm finding as I write, I do remember almost every place I went. But I was, you know, there was one town, I was like, nope, no recollection. <laughs> Found a picture online, it's like, nope, no idea what it was. But, uh, so what did you write about that town? Very nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very pretty. That's usually my my fallback for, for everything. I think I might have done some independent research on that one. You know. So. Well, now what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it means I might have checked the tourism literature. I, actually, one of the things I uh, I did was write to the way I decided how it, yeah. my route was. I wrote to all the tourism offices and said, "Send me your all the literature you have." And I went through other guidebooks, and I would rely on those and and patch together something. But don't tell anyone this. No, 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 nobody's going to hear this, don't you? <laughs> I wanted to quiz you. Okay. Uh, listener, you can, <laughs> listener, you can join in here very much so. So we've got a, a book of lists Larry's trying to see over the corner of the page here. <laughs> we've got a box here. It says, London's most common plant. I don't think in a month of Sundays I would have got any of these. What do you think? You wrote the book. Well, you co-wrote the book. Yeah, um, I think you didn't write this box. I did not. Can you name any of London's ten most common plants? No, I don't think I can. <laughs> How about watercress? Let's have a look. Watercress. No. Because I know that that was a sort of a, a staple of uh, salespeople in the you know, 17th, 18th century. That was one of the things they sold a lot of on the really? street. Yeah, we have a separate list of things that were for, for sale. We shall turn to that list in just a moment. I'll give you two more guesses. I don't know what you're going to do with that. <laughs> uh, let's see. I mean, look, at, look around you. Yeah, I'm looking. No greenery worth a few trees over there. I don't think they really count, though. They're not, re- not really plants, are they? I can't even guess. No, okay. So, according to this list, in your book, yeah. London's most common plant is Shepherd's Purse. Oh. I've never even heard of you. <laughs> yeah. Never even heard of this stuff. That's because it's too common. You wouldn't have noticed it. It's just, it's just everywhere. That's right. I'm sure I've got some on me now. Um, followed by chickweed, bramble, hawthorn, white clover, ripwort plantain. It's a banana, isn't it? Yeah. Common meadow grass, common daisy, yarrow, and dandelion. Well, you could have told me anything there. I know that I am ill-informed, but uh, let's try birds. London's most common bird is... Uh, he says, looking over my shoulder. I believe it's the uh, wood pigeon. That's either one or two. Well, now, you, you looked at the list, <laughs> and you have failed to correctly guess the most popular. <laughs> I went for the second one to make it more realistic. <laughs> <laughs> it is... Um, is no, it's not the... Uh, no, hold on a minute. 
so the wood pigeon I would have thought I thought that the pigeons that massed in Trafalgar Square I didn't think that they were wood pigeons I don't know what I thought they were but in reverse order they are the house sparrow the collared dove starling and dunnock dunnock? yes hmm magpie blackbird great tit robin wood pigeon and the most popular bird or the most common bird I don't know about the most popular bird is the <laughs> blue tit I think it's popular as well day of the blue tit it's very popular yes he's famous for uh, what was the when you were going to go th- things on sale in London I think you mentioned oh well you're going to have to edit this out but the uh, yeah, we'll, just, we'll, we'll have some light uh, music in the background while we do let's see costermongers let's see I wonder if it's a costermonger oh, things to buy it was right before it things to buy on the old streets of London things to buy on the old streets of London and that's old with an E yeah I gave it some atmosphere uh, yeah, I, think I, I think I remember reading somewhere that this E on the end of things is total rubbish. Oh, is it? I'm sh- yeah, I'm sure I remember that from something. Probably another book of facts. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure about these books of facts. Uh, yeah, so here we are. Things about that the uh, street vendor... Yeah, this guy Henry Mayhew did a, a survey of street vendors in the 1850s and listed the the various wares, sort of costermongers. And you'll see watercress is one of the things <laughs> for sale. Uh, but well, yeah. again, there are prizes. There are prizes on offer. Um, prize not available. Yeah. If you can guess, if I can guess, I do remember one well, of did these. Did you write this book? I wrote. I wrote this one. Right, you've got no um, excuse on this one then. Well, me and Mayhew wrote it. But uh, yeah, one thing I remember was the uh, the cat and dog food or the cat and dog meat, which made me nervous at first. But it turns out to be just awful that you would indeed feed to oh, cats good. and dogs. So that makes, makes everyone feel better. Um, See what we can pick out as uh, rat poison you could buy on the streets of London. Well, that figures. You'd, you'd need yeah. rat poison. Yeah. Well, it's not always that surprising, but it's just like this is sort of a tries to show the variety of things that were that that uh, were for sale. Okay, here's one: squirrels. Yes, squirrels. Why would you buy squirrels? Unless it was to maybe it was to eat. I it's I would think it might be to squirrel meat's not bad. Well, I think it actually is eaten in uh, parts of my country. So, oh right, yeah, probably those bits that you were driving through where the choice is burgers or uh, you know whatever you can find. Yes, I believe in certain Appalachian countries and states that it's possible, but I have to check that one too before we uh, besmirch anyone's good name. Groundsel, you can buy groundsel on the old oldie streets of London. What's groundsel? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> Uh, we should look that up, I think. Secondhand weapons. That's very specific. Yeah. Not just weapons. Secondhand weapons. In fact, okay. it doesn't even list weapons. Just secondhand weapons. Well, I don't know why, but I think there could have been a regulation about the actual new weapons, but I don't know what else you got. Walking sticks, tortoises, fine arts, yes. Coke and other materials. I think you can still buy Coke. Um, 13 obsolete jobs is the next list. Yeah. Uh, what do you fancy out of this one? Oh, costermongers. See above. Yeah. I was going to ask you what a costermonger is, but I didn't want to look stupid. Costermongers, street vendors who sold everything from flowers and vegetables to fruit and games, the above. They would often literally sing the praises of their own wares. Like at the beginning of, uh, of Oliver, the movie. Oh, uh, who, who will buy, buy my... Uh, maybe right. not the beginning, but who will buy. So when, yeah, when was Mayhew writing, did you say? 1850s. 1850s. Yeah. But there's some excellent obsolete jobs here. They have the... Uh, we have the mudlarks, which is sort of a, an activity today, but back then it was... Uh, it was mainly young children who walk along the Thames with bare feet and uh, looking for nails and uh, old pieces of glass. Which you'd, f- you'd find the nails yeah, and the pieces of glass. Yeah, they would find them, and that wouldn't be pretty. And that would be right in front of us where we are, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. And there's um, this is one that's also interesting. They had whipping boys. I mean, this is not as common, but it was they were literally whipping boys that were the companions of young royalty who would literally get whipped when the uh, prince or whatnot had misbehaved. And evidently the whipping boys and the, the royalty had developed such a bond that that was actually a very effective way of making, uh, teaching discipline. So, um, but then going back again, we had these horrible uh, toshers who would go through the sewers looking for uh, anything of value, which I wouldn't have wanted to do. And there's some stories of toshers being attacked by you know, hundreds of rats en masse and being killed, and it sounds pretty horrible. It does indeed, and that might link us to another job here, patterers or death hunters. Yeah, those were just, uh, those were newspaper sellers, you know, like uh, rag sheets who they sell on the side of the uh, the highways uh, that would uh, have often last words of convicted felons and described murders. It was, they were like, you know, the rag sheets at the time. Um, yeah, so they're pamphlets. Uh, 
And there was also, I liked, um, what were they called? Go, hold on a second before you turn the page. Gong farmers. Oh, gong is something awful, isn't it? Yes, and they're the people that uh, removed the, the day's waste from privies and cesspits. And uh, they, were, they were restricted to leaving the city at certain times with their uh, haul. And they would bring it outside for dumping. And there's one I like called uh, uh, Moon Cursors. Uh, I believe that's what they were called. Yeah, Moon Cursors, because they were young boys who would uh, help people through the dark streets of London. They would have, uh, they would, you know, have a flame to show the way. And if the moon was out, people didn't need them. So they were Moon Cursors, you know. And which of these people would you least like to be stuck in a lift with? I'm going to go with Toshers. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I still think gong farmers might just outdo that. I don't know. That's true. It's a little earlier in the process. So, right. <laughs> have you got some some favourites among the list here? Uh, well, yeah, I'm I'm always a a fan of the I mentioned earlier the World War II bomb sites. We had the menu items for the the royal feast I mentioned, and there's something that always surprised me. Where they had a they had some recipes that included something called penny royal. That's not in this one, but penny royal was later found out to be extremely toxic and could, could kill you. What sort of a thing was it? Uh? It was an herb. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it, uh, it was in several recipes that I found. I was looking in, in the research, and uh, it's something that we don't encourage people putting in today because it it's, it's very bad for you. I'm sure Nirvana did a song called Penny Royalty. Oh, one thing I do like, it's uh, where I went. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To school in St. John's Wood was right near Abbey Road of Abbey Road fame. And so I went, started going to school there in 1970, and of course Abbey Road, the album, just come out in 1969, so it was, it was brand new, but it was so cool that, was, hey, that's the crosswalk that the Beatles were crossing so over. it was instantly famous. It was instantly famous, and you know, now if you go, now I'm sure you'll know that there's always like hordes of tourists on either side waiting to probably infuriate the drivers who have to go there every day. But, um, I mean, back then it, was, it just was a regular zebra crossing, and... Um, but I did do a, a, one of the lists where the, uh, the top, you know, the most famous recordings ever at Abbey Road. And whenever I'd cross the, uh, the crossing, I would look down towards the Abbey Road studios. We'd try and see, you know, see long-haired guys going. I was like, are those the Beatles? Are those the Beatles? And then later on, I tried to figure what was the most famous album actually recorded while I was there. And the answer is uh, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. So in my head, I saw Dark, uh, Pink Floyd coming in and out. So there are some interesting, you know, recordings. The uh, you know, Pomp and Circumstance was recorded there. Uh, another favorite of my list is the we have Odd London Locations, which is uh, you know everyone's favorite kind of list. And we have uh, there's a thing called the Macklin Memorial, which I find interesting. There's a Charles Macklin, who was a famous actor in the 18th century, and he killed a fellow actor backstage. Um, I think it was in Drury Lane. Uh, but he stabbed him through the eye and he didn't go to prison or anything but so he sort of commemorated the shame of his deed on his uh, when he died he made his own memorial and it's in St. Paul's Church in Covent Garden the memorial and it's an old theater mask with a knife going through the eye socket um, so he's sort of uh, commemorating his, his misdeed do we know why it was that he didn't get I don't, punished? I don't he, claimed he, he was found guilty of manslaughter but he never went to prison Maybe because he was so famous, I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, and then there's York Watergate, which you, I, I think you were at in Victoria Gardens a couple of months ago. It's the old Watergate, which is now inland, about you know 30 yards where Victoria oh, yes. Gardens are. Yes. But that used to be oh, the, just across the river from yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's the, uh, the nose in Admiralty Arch. I don't know if you know those little stone noses. And 
I don't know what the what the it turned out to be. They were placed there by an artist, I think in the '80s. Several noses around town, and I believe it uh, was sort of a protest of Big Brother. You know, the eye in the sky. Though I don't know what a nose signifies on it, but uh, well, there's a, a, a friend of the show, Peter Bertou, who does a fantastic tour that is based around the uh, I think it's the Seven Noses of Soho. But look him up. He's he's been on the show before and uh, very much an urbane and uh, friendly face around town. We also have a list that I like, uh, curious street names and how they came about. And there's one, you know, the the markets around East Cheap, you know, a lot of the streets have kind of obvious names, Poultry or Milk Street or Bread Street. And there's one called Friday Street, which I found slightly confusing. Then you realize that it leads to the fish market, which on Fridays, which is where people in that time would go to get their, their meal. Um, and... There's also Pudding Lane. That's also one of my favorites because Pudding Lane sounds such a sort of a charming sort of fairy tale name, but pudding was actually you know slop and intestines, and it was a butcher's area, and they would just dump all this stuff down on the street, and it would be kind of be swept down Pudding Lane towards the Thames, and they actually would be barges at the Thames that would come and they would sweep the stuff in. There was that much of it that they could do that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was on. It's, it's a sort of a steep incline towards the Thames, but I always like that just because Pudding Lane has such a kind of a, a charming name, but it was not charming. Well, I bet you then, along with the Gong Farmers and the Toshes, I bet there was somebody whose job it was to sweep that stuff down the street. Yeah, yeah, and there's also we have Sherborne Lane and this uh, unusual list, which is actually a derivative of Shiteburn, which was also a public privy. So basically a lot of scatological references in the book. Yeah, kind of <laughs> nicely concealed in plain sight. What's the... I don't know whether this is a gauche question to ask, but what's the general depiction of London on the other side of the Atlantic? I know that there are stereotype views that we have across the other way. What, what's the general understanding, if there is such a thing, of uh, what London's about? The reason I ask is because I know it used to be that we were all embarrassingly polite about everything and uh, all of our teeth were falling out and we were all related to aristocracy. And apart from the teeth, I, I think those things can't seriously be held to be true anymore. Well, I mean, obviously it depends who you talk to, but I think there is still the, you know, the perception of, of England being and the English and, and the politeness and English society, and I think that's why a lot of people still come, that London is the number one destination, I believe, for, for Americans, but I think of the world. I think people come looking for a little, you know, the pomp and circumstance and ceremony and the royalty, and I think there's still that romanticism. I don't, I don't know if Americans think of London as the sort of the modern you know, hub of banking that it is, and the, uh, you know, the, the quickly growing, you know, the architectural parts of the East End and, and the city, but I think I mean, it's a little different with Brexit now because mm. people, you know, spend a lot of time... Uh, I think they're self-conscious that people think Americans, you know, are conservative or we hear dumb even. But, uh, you know, there's sort of a perception like, how could that happen in England? It seems like something that wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. It's sort of contrary to our perception. In, but, in, what, re- in what respects specifically? Well, um, I think... I don't know if it's related to being a polite society, but, you know, the, England has always been where, you know, from the empire, there were so many people, so many immigrants coming from all over the world. And I think it's viewed as a, sort of an, an anti-immigration maneuver. But I also think it's, uh, I mean, it depends who you ask, because it's hard for me, because I do know London, but I think there are many people in England who, uh, in the United States, who still see sort of London in, in sort of the traditional way that, that maybe even London sees itself or has over the last you know centuries, which is you know a little hard to find now. You have to go down a lot of little streets and, and peek around corners to find you know old England. But it's you know it's the pubs, even though those are disappearing you know, from London. Right? That's what I think Americans are looking for. I don't know if that's you know accurate anymore. But. Is there is there any whiff that do you detect that uh, that an American thinking about coming here would feel that they might be any less welcome? because of this perceived shift in national appetite for foreigners coming here? I don't think that... Do they get in under the radar because they're American? <laughs> I think they think they do. Yeah, I mean, having, having spent many years growing up here, I was always self-conscious about being American. So I remember being in a movie theater when I was a kid, seeing uh, you know, some kids in front of us heard our American accent and started you know, getting in our faces about the American Revolution and wanting to fight about that. And I was what, like, what film were you seeing? 
Uh, it was a Western. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they also wanted to know if they, if, you know, we had cars and if we still carried guns. And I said only half of that is true, but, you know. Because um, they were probably distressed because they can only buy second-hand weapons. <laughs> That's right, from the costermongers. It's true. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, it, you know, if, if, whenever there's an incident, you know, Americans tend to stay home a bit more. And we noticed that in the travel industry when, when there's a, you know, some horrible terrorist attack. Oh, you mean in, in London, for example, or in s- somewhere or in, overseas? In Europe, you know, yeah. Americans, you know, we take, we look inward and we take trips around America, which is, you know, there's a lot to see, you know, but I still think that England sort of uh, feels like sort of an old friend and an extension, or not quite an extension, but a, but a safe place. Maybe it's the language, too, because Americans can be intimidated by foreign languages, even though, as we know, the languages aren't identical, but... You can get the you can get from A to B, point A to point B. Well, now you're freelance, I suppose. So you're at even more liberty to tell me what the mood is over there regarding your new president or president elect. We should be very specific about that at this stage. Any, what's your view of, uh, of all that? <laughs> well, I tend to avoid political things, but uh, it's a bit it's a bit strange because I I also I mean my friends can never see, but I tend to believe in giving people a chance before we sort of attack but I will say there's something about the president-elect that makes me a little nervous because it's not so much the policies but I just like you know are they thought through that's all that's what I get concerned about and you just hear stories but I still kind of like until until he's doing the job and doing something terrible I'm, I'm, I want to give him a chance I've always sort of been the type that gives whoever the support whoever the president is and I want the policies to work. And I always wonder, how do we know that something's not going to work? I remember when Reagan came in, it was you know people were crying. It's going to be World War III, and we're going to you know all these nu- you know nuclear weapons in uh, into the short short range nuclear weapons in Europe, and that turned out you know to work fairly well. And it just I think it's hard to anticipate. However, I am. I think it was Obama said they're going to be you know keeping a close eye but giving them a chance. So I, I didn't do very well not speaking about politics there, but uh, I tend to give people a chance. But I'm a little concerned myself. Mm. Of course, uh, we want things to work. Good goodness knows we want things to work out. Yeah. So you're here for what a couple of weeks? Yeah. What does somebody with your level of experience of travel and your level of experience of this place and having written all about it, what do you do apart from uh, like seeing friends or that kind of thing? What do you do that's Londony? Well, um, it's funny because my world started, you know, when I was young and I had sort of a very small view of, of London and then I sort of, that expanded the more often I came and I got, went to all the tourist sites as I was, you know, got older and as I was updating these guidebooks and now I'm trying to sort of go, you know, it's kind of like this, the underground, I was in zone one, now I'm kind of trying to do zone two and three and trying to find sort of the little things, like this morning I walked to, uh, find there's the one of London's smallest statues are these two mice on the side of a building uh, fighting for a piece of cheese. It's on East Cheap, the corner of East Cheap and Philpot Lane, and evidently it's from about 1850 when two workmen fell to their death from the monument. They were doing repairs on the, uh, the monument, and this is a memorial to those two workers because evidently they were fighting with each other about some cheese that was stolen, and it turned out later that evidently, that some mice had taken it. So I went to see that, and it was covered with scaffolding, but that's okay. But that's So I try and find sort of some of the little things. Uh, yesterday I went to, uh, in St. Dunstan's in the West, on Fleet Street, there's the one of the oldest statues, well, there's a statue of Elizabeth I in an alcove facing out onto the street. And uh, if it is, I mean, there's some controversy about it, as there is about every single thing, past and present. Uh, but it's possible that it was sculpted in the 1580s and would be the only surviving statue that was made during her lifetime. So to me, I look at it as like, oh, that's what you really look like. That's what you really look like. But it also could have been done 100 years later. But just like, kind of like little things like that. I went to, uh, you went to St. Dunstan's in the East recently, which is a beautiful old bombed out church, a Wren church, which is now a garden which is one of my favorite spots in London. But I try and find the more hidden places, you know, the places that we need guidebooks about, you know, hidden London. And uh, that and, you know, pubs that I've never been to. I want to go to the Mayflower Pub and Rotheride down there. So I try and kind of expand my horizons and uh, see little things, but I also try and go to the neighborhoods that I had never been to. I want to go to Walthamstow for some reason. And, you know, the Olympic area, the Olympic Park area. 
things that weren't you know, didn't really exist when I was uh, when I was young or did exist, sorry did exist but I never saw. It sounds a little bit like fix chasing. You know when you think about somebody who's got an addiction of some sort, and they're early on it's the big highs and all that, and thereafter it's chasing smaller and smaller, which is not to make these things insignificant by any means, but chasing lower loads of fix and working harder to get them. Well, yes, I do have a problem, it's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it could be even like um, certain paintings that, um, a lot of things are from the research I did for the book are like uh, the original model for the DNA, uh, Watson and Crick in the Science Museum, and there's a, in the Museum of London has this beautiful uh, Rhinebeck panorama it's called and it's a drawing from like the about 1800 a very detailed drawing of 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 london and it's a you know it's a long diorama and you can see you know people people doing there's a funeral procession and a man flying a kite and if you look very closely so i mean i kind of seek i do seek those little things out and uh of course when i'm here i get nostalgic so i also go back to and see things that I've always loved, you know, some of the parks I've always loved going through. I always like Green Green Park for some reason. I go to my old neighborhood, Little Venice, which is, I find very beautiful, maybe not on a cloudy day like today. But. This is a question that I've never really got cause to, to ask, but I think I'm going to ask. Um, London views, from where would you recommend seeing London? I can tell you what mine would be. But, and they're both kind of weather-related in a weird way or time-related. You know, you could you could visit the same spot at different times and not get it. But they, the view from the, the bridge we're looking at just there, the Hungerford Footbridge, up the Thames towards the city, and there's a very particular time of night just as the darkness is arriving. So the, the night sky isn't fully black, but it's still got that deep blue. The lights are all on. Reflections, you want a sort of a clearish evening so you get the reflections in the water. Absolutely beautiful. And um, Hampton Court, if we can count that in London, and I'm yeah. going to, Hampton Court on a, a frosty morning where you've got the, uh, the white grass and the white sculpted trees and the frozen mist hanging in the air and you're transported back mm-hmm. four or five hundred years. Absolutely magical. Well, in terms of views, one of my favourite views in London is uh, the bridge in St. James's Park. If you're not looking towards Buckingham Palace but back towards Whitehall, you know, there's something just magical about the willows and the the buildings in the distance that look like like they've looked for hundreds of years. I always enjoyed that particular view, and also up from Hampstead Heath, when you're looking down that view as well, when you're looking down on London. Mm. And uh, when I was, I always enjoyed Primrose Hill too. You know, we used to take our dog running around there, and that's there's something from the views up there are also are, are lovely. I will say, when you go to St Paul's Cathedral. There is you have the opportunity to go out to the rim on the outside, which may seem like a lot of steps at the time, but I definitely recommend doing that because it's first of all it's kind of terrifying, but it's exhilarating. It's just you really are up there. You really get a sense of well, we mentioned in the book the tallest structures through the centuries, and St. Paul's is on and off. I mean, it's been eclipsed now; it's been the tallest structure. But I find that an amazing view. Oh, uh, well, the, the view, I thought you were going to say the, the other view, looking in, in and down when you're at the same level oh, the in St. Paul's. Uh, yeah, well, there's, a, there's a, inside the upper dome, I'm sure there's a better technical term for it than that, but the upper dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, there's a, well, a trapdoor, essentially, with a hole in the middle of it, right. and you can look down and you're seeing what seems like about 23,000 miles below you, you're seeing the uh, circular floor of St. Paul's Cathedral. And you're full of admiration for that, and then you remember that you're on a trapdoor. Yeah. Am I allowed to say one that that always disappoints me as a view? Well, this could be controversial. Yeah, it will be. I was going to say from the monument, I just feel it's so, you know, you climb up 350 steps or whatever it is, and it's like, well, I don't know, I see a lot of building sites, you know. I mean, I know back in the day it was something else, but... No, well, the same, same thing goes, I think, with the Oxo Tower as well, and both of these places are, are fascinating structures and huge stories but uh, they're building too much stuff around them mm-hmm. they're going to be in the they're going to be monuments in the foyer of another building before long have you have you been to the top of the shard uh, no i've been halfway up oh halfway i mean it's well, first of all it costs a lot but that oh, is... i could only afford halfway <laughs> That's right. i went to a, I went to a restaurant plan you can pay the rest and go later <laughs> <laughs> i went to a restaurant there where you can you can urinate looking out at london They've got a wall made out of glass, and the urinal is, which is not transparent, thank goodness for the neighbours opposite, <laughs> up against the window, and you can relieve yourself whilst admiring your uh, throbbing city. 
what will they think of next? I will say, but being up there, it's really quite amazing because you really... Actually, there's a photo in this the London Book of Lists of, that I took of, of the Tower of London from the top of the shower where it just looks like this little toy. It's really quite amazing. It's really one of the more spectacular views. Have you heard that they're building... I, I believe that this is correct. They're building another tower which is going to be... a Right, say five meters shorter than the shard. I have not heard that. It seems I, peculiar I think, on several levels. I thought you were going to say they're building another Tower of London just because they didn't like the first one, but I don't think that was Tower the- of London too. <laughs> this time, it's another Tower of London. No, I, I don't really understand what London's skyline is going to look like. The, the shard really doesn't fit in and makes no attempt to fit in. But two of those. Well, I actually like the, uh, the look of the shard. I know it's a little incongruous, but I also like the World Trade Center. I, things that people mm. sometimes find little jarring I, I thought I, I kind of I don't know I kind of like I know people who watched it go up didn't enjoy the experience that much or thought it was going to be more in the view but uh, um, I don't know about the other one let me just show you this what do you make of the new have you seen the new uh, are we still calling it the World Trade Center building you know the one that's yeah. Uh, gone in the yeah, yeah. What, what do you um, make of that well, I like the, the tower. I mean, I think there was some controversy about the design. It kind of got watered down so that everyone would like it. It's interesting because you have one tower now that goes way up, and all the buildings around it sort of are sort of descending heights, so it looks like almost like a, a flower, like a, coming out of a, you know, an escalating tower. So they have a little cluster down there now. Um, but I, I like it. You know, it's attractive. I haven't been up there yet. You were, you were leafing around for so I think, I think we should finish with a flourish from the Book of Lists. Uh, I don't know if this counts as a flourish, but I've always been interested in the uh, Lost Rivers of London. And uh, if you go to the Sloan Square tube stop and on the district line, district circle line, there's a sort of a pipe, an encased pipe, going across the platform, which is the remnants of the old Westbourne River, which is now unfortunately a sewer. Though I will say they did make kind of the other ones that they buried were open sewers anyway, you know, but uh, but a lot of the rivers, and if you go down to, to go down the Thames, you see the uh, the remnant of another river down by uh, sort of where the Dickensian old uh, slums were. Um, can't remember the name of that river. I think it's the New River uh, that came through Suffolk and came up. I don't know if that counts as a flourish. No, are we, d- are we down by Blackfriars? Is it that down that way? Uh, on this uh, side. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. I think we failed to flourish in that last. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's let's finish with the list. All right. Well, this one. What? Oh, hold on. What's this? Most, is this the one you're going for? No, I was going to do this. Well, one. I want to do this one. Well, that one's interesting. We can do both. Okay. Can, most popular baby names of particular note. So this is London baby names. Yeah, London boys and girls baby names. And the thing that's interesting is that, uh, I mean, this is I took the 1904, 1954, 74, and 2013. And for the boys' names, what's interesting is after a century of, like, William, David, John, Paul, Michael, the number one baby name in 2013 is Muhammad, if you take all huh. the variant spellings, which is interesting, of course. Um, Riley. I wouldn't have expected to see that on the uh, top ten. Well, yeah, it's 2013. Everything's... Who do we... There's no famous Riley, is there? Well, so maybe we've got sure. Riley. How interesting. Yeah. And what about for girls? So 2013. Everything seems to need to end in a vowel now. Amelia, oh, yes. Olivia, Jessica, Ava. Well, Mia. when I was growing up, no, that's not true at all. It was all ending in Y. Now, I've said that, and I can't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have uh, 1974 here, so that'll help. Oh, here we go. Right. Sarah, Claire, Nicola, Emma, Lisa. Well, apparently, None total of them rubbish what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. no. Well, they're all ending in vowels as well. There's no change... You've got to go back to 54 before you get Susan, Linda, Christine. Could you imagine calling a baby Christine? I think I could, actually. Oh, really? You're, do you I'm have not... a child called Christine? No, no. no okay. It just, just doesn't seem that far-fetched to me. I don't know. Edith, Dorothy. Well, once we've let Christine in, I mean, anything goes. Here, this is a good flourish one. Uh, we have one list called The Worst Days Ever to Be a, a London Moneyer. Um, and there's only one entry in the list. It's because it was a Christmas Day. What's a London moneyer? A moneyer is a. It was in the in Middle Ages, medieval times. It was uh, coins were still handmade by moneyers. And in 1124, uh, Henry I was in uh, Normandy uh, squashing a rebellion, and he called for coins to be shipped over to pay the soldiers. And when the coins arrived, it was obvious that they had been debased, which means that they had uh, there wasn't as much silver as there was supposed to be. I think tin was added. And so Henry uh, had his Roger Salisbury 
they brought all the moneyers to uh, Winchester on Christmas Day 1124 and had them all castrated and their right hands chopped off. And there were 150 moneyers in London at the time, and about 94 uh, had that punishment, which I thought was a bit harsh, you know, for you know a few people perhaps doing that. You'd, you'd have thought that either or would be sufficient. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you want to make a point. So. <laughs> <laughs> but just in case you forget the loss of your testicles, <laughs> yeah, this will yeah. remind you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, London in the Middle Ages always seems like. I mean, I I was always fascinated by that period, but I think it would have been a pretty awful time to have lived i mean i mean we can talk about that you know, there's got that plague thing and you know again the the open sewers and and you know in the 17th century for a while i believe it was the 17th century they didn't think that they thought that uh, bathing and cleaning your skin was bad for you so they went 100 years without doing that which i think you know didn't contribute to the overall you know odor of the city no would you but, prefer to be inside or outside under those circumstances <laughs> I've just seen what you've done. We were talking about finishing on a flourish, and I think you finished this piece about uh, chopping people's hands off on a flourish. So they've had, they've had all their hands removed, and your final sentence is, so on our list of the worst days ever to be a London moneyer, that day in 1124 wins hands down. Shame on you. Flourish, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That one was mine, yeah. <laughs> we have to reluctantly come to a close. We should uh, once again tip our hats to the co-author of this book, Tim Jepson. Where are you off to? Well, I'm going to be touring more of London, then I get to go home and finish writing my next book. Do you know when that's going to be out? Well, I think now it's slated for spring of 2019. That sounds very exciting. I'm definitely going to be getting a copy of that. Have you photographs? Yeah, I took about 7,000 photographs on my, on my travels. So I'm hoping that the photo editors at National Geographic will deem them worthy, because it is National Geographic. Well, that's very exciting. Well, enjoy the rest of the trip, and thanks for everything you've contributed to the show prior to today and for today. Larry Porges, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Larry Porges. Thanks too to Tim Jepson and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.